Peace be upon you. In Arabic, the word thick means an understanding or comprehension. In the context of Islamic jurisprudence, it specifically refers to the understanding and interpretation of Islamic law and religious principles. Islamic scholars study and apply fiqh to derive legal and ethical guidelines for matters such as worship, morality, family, finance, and other things. There are currently four primary Islamic schools of Sunni jurisprudence, or schools of fiqh. The oldest and the most popular is that of the Hanafi school, and this was founded by Imam Abu Hanifa, and he passed 150 years after the Hijra. The second school is the Maliki school, and this was founded by Imam Malik, who died 179 years after Hijra. Then that's followed by the Shafi school, founded by Imam al-Shafi, and he died 204 years after Hijra. And the last school is the Hanbali school, and Ahmad ibn Hanbal, he died in 241 years after Hijra. These four schools, also known as madhabs, represent distinct approaches to Islamic jurisprudence and have their own interpretations of Islamic law, practices, and principles. While there are other schools of thought in Sunni Islam, these four madhabs are considered the most prominent and widely followed within the Sunni branch of Islam. Each of these madhabs have its own rules, legal principles, and ways of coming to conclusions, the, the methods by which they use to come to their legal rulings. An interesting observation is that historically, each succeeding school put more emphasis on hadith in determining their legal rulings than their predecessor. To put it in another way, the Hanafi school, which is the oldest, relied the least on hadith in comparison to the Maliki, who relied less than the Shafi, who relied less than the Hanbali, who put the most emphasis on Hadith to determine their legal rulings. This means that as time passed, each progressing school considered Hadith more and more significant in forming their laws. And this goes against common sense. You would think that the earlier generations, being closer to the Prophet, would put more emphasis on the Hadith and this is not what we find historically. And this shows that as time progressed, the Muslims started putting more and more emphasis on the Hadith and retroactively changing history to make it appear as if Hadith was always the cornerstone of understanding the religion. So how can we show that there was more emphasis later on in history in the Madhabs than there was earlier on? And we can do this by studying the actual material left by each of these founders for their respective schools. So for instance, the Musnad, the Hadith compilation by Ibn Hanbal, this contains 40,000 Hadith. It is stated that Ibn Hanbal went through some 750,000 to 1 million Hadith and from that he sourced 40,000 Hadith. Shafi who lived not that much uh, far off from Ibn Hanbal, in his Musnad, his collection of Hadith, he had about 2,000 Hadith that were attributed to the Prophet. So we're seeing this progressive drop. If we look at the Muwatta of Imam Malik, this has 1,720 narrations, but only 600 of these narrations actually have an Isnad going back to the Prophet. Most the narrations from the Muwatta of Imam Malik 
They're actually his own personal legal reasoning or that of sayings attributed to the companions. And it's particularly peculiar that Imam Malik, who lived a whole lifetime before Ibn Hanbal and lived among the direct descendants of the Prophet's companions in Medina, had only about 600 narrations attributed to the Prophet. Yet Ibn Hanbal, who was born and died 1,400 kilometers away from Medina in Baghdad, attributed over 40,000 hadith from the Prophet. So either way you look at it, it's very strange. Either Imam Malik knew about these hadith because he's living amongst the people who are the closest to the Prophet uh, as far as the descendants of the direct companions in Medina, and he knew about these hadith and chose not to include it in his Mawata, or these are fabricated narrations that came into existence after his death. Either way, it doesn't look good for Sunni Islam. Now, it's more sensible to assume that these narrations collected by Ibn Hanbal did not exist and were fabricated later on. Because when we look at the Muwatta of Imam Malik, the vast majority of his writings are actually not direct sayings that he's attributing to the Prophet. But again, these are his own legal reasonings, as well as sayings that he's attributing to the companions of the Prophet. And this goes to show that Hadith, again, was not the cornerstone for the religion at the time of Imam Malik, as it was for his successors, Shafi and Ibn Hanbal. Also to show that for Imam Malik, the emphasis of Hadith was not as great as it was for his uh, successors, we have the Abbasid Caliph al-Mansur who died in 158 Hijra, where he ordered Imam Malik to make his compilation, this Mawatta, the standard book of legal law to be promulgated in the Muslim regions. And we have this statement that's attributed to Al-Mansur where it states, it should be a compendium of the agreed upon views of the companions and the elder Imams on the religious and legal issues. Once you have compiled such a work, then we would be able to unite the Muslims in following the single fiqh worked by you. We would then promulgate it in the entire Muslim state and we would order that nobody acts contrary to it. What's interesting is that Imam Malik refused to allow his book to be spread to other lands as the de facto source of fiqh because he believed that his book was only applicable for the people in his region, which was the Hijaz, that of Mecca and Medina. Obviously, the Imam did not have the same view towards the Quran, which was readily circulated to all the Muslim regions. So he made a legal book for himself and his uh, constituency and did not expect this to become the legal book for the entire Muslim Ummah, unlike, again, Shafi and Hanbali. And we see that Shafi, on the other hand, emphasized the final authority of a Hadith so that even the Quran was to be interpreted in the light of the traditions and not vice versa. So he believed that the Hadith superseded that of the Quran because the Hadith explained the Quran. While earlier Madhabs believed that the Quran is considered above the Sunnah in authority, Al-Shafi forcefully argued that the Sunnah stands on equal footing with the Quran. For these extreme views, he had severe clashes with the Maliki and Hanafi schools of thought during his life. So much so that it is believed that after a particular debate with a Maliki follower, 
he was beaten by Maliki's supporters, which led to his eventual death. So this shows that Shafi's promotion of the Sunnah over the Quran was not a popular position at that time, that he was being persecuted by the followers of the earlier Madhabs for such blasphemies. And then Ibn Hanbal, who lived after Shafi, put even more emphasis on the Hadith than even the Shafi school. While Imam Shafi held a stricter guideline uh, than Ibn Hanbal in authenticating Hadith, he also considered consensus of scholars known as Ijma and analogical reasoning uh, known as Qiyas as important sources of Islamic law. Imam Ibn Hanbal, on the other hand, believed that Hadith, even weakly authenticated, should be followed in the absence of stronger evidence to the contrary. So unlike Shafi, Ibn Hanbal's method of determining legal rulings was predominantly spent searching for a hadith that covered the condition rather than relying on other sources such as analogical reasoning or consensus. Therefore, he believed even a weak hadith had more merit than any rulings made by logic and reason. In the book, Misquoting Muhammad by the uh, professor Jonathan Brown, uh, he writes that although Ibn Hanbal acknowledged that there were many hadith in his musnad that suffered from some flaw or weakness in their isnads, he felt they were all admissible in elaborating some area of the Sharia. He explained that as long as a hadith was supported by an isnad reliable enough to show it was not a patent forgery, then one was required to accept it and act accordingly to the Prophet's words. And then it cites the following quote from Ibn Hanbal. It says, A flawed hadith is preferable to me than a scholar's opinion or qiyas. He added that Muslims were, as Ibn Hanbal reminded his students, commanded to take their religion from on high and not rely on the flawed faculty of reason. So Ibn Hanbal's methodology for determining Islamic rulings was going and searching for even weak hadith that gave clarity to whatever the subject matter is. Rather than using logic, reason, the verse of the Quran, his primary method was going and digging up hadith that even today we know were fabricated because he found this more reliable than depending on reason, logic, and even the Quran itself. So we see that each succeeding madhab put more and more reliance on hadith for determining their rulings, yet we haven't even looked at the oldest madhab of Abu Hanifa, who lived in the first century Hijra. And we can use him to determine that if it is true that each progressive madhab put more and more emphasis on the hadith than their predecessors, then we should see that Abu Hanifa put even less emphasis on hadith than Imam Malik. And this is precisely what we find. There are only three books to date that are attributed to Abu Hanifa. The first is his supposed Musnad, his collection of Hadith. The second is a book entitled Al-Fiqh Al-Akbar, which translates to the greater understanding. And the last book that is attributed to him is entitled The Scholar and the Teacher. The Musnad of Abu Hanifa is said to contain some 500 Hadith. This itself is still lower than the 600 attributed by Imam Malik. And there were several versions 
of this supposed uh, Musnad attributed to Abu Hanifa. And they were collected into a single volume by an individual by the name of Al-Khurzimi in the 7th century. And here is a quote in the preface to this book. Al-Khurzimi uh, states, I heard a number of ignoramuses in Syria say that Imam Abu Hanifa was not well versed in Hadith, which according to them explain why there was no book by him on the subject. This was a challenge to my sense of loyalty, in answer to which I decided to compile together all the musnads which have been composed by different ulama on the basis of traditions narrated by Abu Hanifa. In the book, Imam Abu Hanifa, Life and Work, written by Shibli Nomani, it discusses these three works attributed to Abu Hanifa. In chapter 8 entitled Abu Hanifa's Writings, on page 101, it states, The truth, however, is that it is extremely difficult to establish the Imam's authorship of, and then in reference to the Musnads attributed to Abu Hanifa. The book concludes that there's no legitimacy to claim that the Musnad attributed to Abu Hanifa came from him. In page 103, it says, Al-Khurzimi lived in the 7th century Hijra. And the Musnads he compiled are mostly from the 3rd or 4th century or even later. It is also noteworthy that no one has mentioned any of these Musnads until Al-Khurzimi compiled his book. So the book concludes that this uh, Musnad attributed to Abu Hanifa is a fabrication. That this did not actually come from Abu Hanifa, but this was something concocted to create legitimacy that Abu Hanifa put more emphasis on Hadith than he actually did. So now we can comfortably say there is no Musnad that actually came from Abu Hanifa. He did not compile any Hadith that we are aware of today. Regarding the second book attributed to Abu Hanifa, Al-Fiqh Al-Akbar, this book is readily available and it's about the foundational articles of the Sunni faith. And this book aims to refute the other ideologies of that time, most notably that of the Mutazilites, the Qadaris, and the Kharijis. But was this book actually written by Abu Hanifa? Again, if we look at the biography of Abu Hanifa, it discusses this book, and it cites some of the scholars that have uh, vouched that Abu Hanifa wrote this book, as well as mentioning the numerous commentaries written uh, regarding this book. But it states on page 103, it says, Nevertheless, I find it difficult to accept this. The style in which the book is written had not yet come into existence at the time it is said to have been written. It is a regular text with brevity and orderliness, characteristics of books of a later period. Again, there occur in it the words jahar and art, which are philosophical terms that had not yet come into use. And for background, in Islamic philosophy and metaphysics, the terms jahar and ard have specific meanings. They have to do with the essence of creation. But these terms used for these concepts were not in circulation at the life of Abu Hanifa. In historical analysis, this is called an anachronism. When something is placed or depicted in a time or era where it doesn't belong, it happens when a person, object, event, or idea is out of place in its historical context. For instance, in a movie set in ancient Greece, if you spot characters wearing timepieces, 
That's an anachronism because wristwatches simply didn't exist in ancient Greece. So recognizing anachronisms helps historians uncover the real time periods of works rather than just depending on hearsay. And the fact that it's using these philosophical concepts from a later time period and retrojecting them into an earlier time period and attributing it to Abu Hanifa shows that this is not the case. And it continues, it says, even from the point of view of historical criticism, it is not established that Abu Hanifa was the author of Al-Fiqh al-Akbar. There is no mention of the work in writings of the second and third centuries. The earliest book in which, as far as I know, Al-Fiqh al-Akbar is mentioned is from the fifth century. The Imam had thousands of disciples, most of whom were masters in their own right. And each of these in turn had thousands of disciples. It is highly improbable that if there had existed a work by the Imam, not one of the hundreds of thousands of his direct and indirect disciples should have made reference to it. There is no mention of Al-Fiqh Al-Akbar in any of the well-known books on dogmatics and allied subjects. And it closes by saying that all the commentaries on the book were written in or after the 8th century. So it's particularly strange that if this book was actually written by it, why was it not mentioned for hundreds of years? And the first commentaries came almost 700 years after its supposed writing. So this shows that this book too is not actually from Abu Hanifa. This leaves only one book that can be attributed to Abu Hanifa that we have today, which is the scholar and the teacher. This book is a dialogue between Abu Hanifa and one of his students covering a number of theological matters. The book with commentary is only about 250 pages and consists of 44 sections. Each section discusses topics like prophethood, traits of the prophet, faith, abrogation, worship, disobedience, and many other issues. If Hadith were central to Abu Hanifa's rulings and understandings of the religion, we would expect many references to Hadith and narrations attributed to the Prophet. We would expect this book to be riddled with stories of the Prophet, his sayings, his actions, his inactions. But what we find in actuality is that throughout the entire book, Abu Hanifa only cites a single Hadith and is just to emphasize that God does not conduct any injustice, which is a theme readily uh, seen throughout the Quran. Yet, in his responses to his student, he directly quotes the verses of the Quran 59 times, not including many of the references he makes to the verse of the Quran without directly quoting them. If we look at page 175, he makes this comment, says, if a group of three men come with a hadith, that we do not know or we cannot relate it with knowledge by experience or analogical reasoning. We refer the knowledge to Allah and we stop. And in the commentary it explains that Abu Hanifa meant by stopping is that he would not act upon the Hadith. Aside from that, the student in two of his questions references Hadith. The first one is regarding the group known as the Kharij that attributed to the Prophet claiming he said that someone who commits fornication is no longer a Muslim. For background, the Kharij believe that sin made someone no longer a Muslim. And if someone is no longer a Muslim, they are an apostate and should be attacked or killed unless they return to justice. 
So this is the statement from the student, and it can be found on page 181. It says, the people narrate, if the believer commits illegal fornication, he has taken faith from his head like removing a shirt. If he repents, then his faith returns to him. Do you have doubt in their speech or truthfulness? As for the truthfulness of their speech, this is according to the speech of the Kharaj. If you doubt their words, then you doubt the words according to the opinion of the Kharaj and return to justice as we described. If you deny their words, they say you deny the speech of the Prophet of Allah upon him peace and blessings, as they reported this from men who reached the Messenger of Allah. So to give commentary to this, again, the student is asking regarding this statement, that if someone commits a legal fornication, that it's as if he's no longer a Muslim. And the Kharaj claim that this is a uh, hadith from the Prophet, that you cannot deny such speech, otherwise you'll be denying the Prophet. And here's Abu Hanifa's response. He says, I believe in everything the Prophet spoke. However, the Prophet never spoke of tyranny or opposed the Quran. This opinion of them is belief in the Prophet and the Quran and freeing oneself from opposing the Quran. If they claim that the Prophet opposed the Quran, then they speak untruths about Allah. Allah will not leave them until he seizes them by the right hand and cuts their aortas, as Allah the Exalted said in the Quran in chapter 69 verse 44 through 47, had he uttered any other words, we would have seized him by the right hand, we would have severed his aorta, none of you could have helped him. The Prophet of God did not dispute the Book of God, most exalted, for a disputer of the Book of God would not be a Prophet of God. And he continues, he says, what they reported is against the Quran because Allah the Exalted said, the female fornicator and the male fornicator, this is in chapter 24, verse 3, there is no negation of the term faith. Allah the Exalted said, those two of you, in chapter 4, verse 16, he said, from you, and this is not about the Jews or Christians, rather, it is only about the Muslims. So what Abu Hanifa is claiming is there is no indication in the Quran that if someone commits adultery, they are no longer a Muslim, like the Kharaj claim. He continues, every man of Kharaj rejects the speech about the Prophet by opposing the Quran. It is not rejecting of the Prophet, and they lie about it. Rather, the rejection of falsehood is about the speech of the Prophet. The accusation enters it, and it is not about the Prophet of Allah. In a nutshell, what Abu Hanifa is claiming is that Kharaj accused him of leaving Hadith, but he accuses them of leaving the Quran. He is saying that they are attributing lies to the Prophet and ascribing falsehood to him by their accusations. And the mechanism by which he's doing this is by showing that their statements contradict the words of God in the Quran. Now, there's another interesting point here. The Kharaj who are known for being ruthless for not flinching at the opportunity to kill someone for disbelief, that they believe that if someone commits a sin, they're no longer a Muslim, never stated that the punishment for adultery is stoning, like it's found in later compilations of Hadith. Nor did Abu Hanifa make such claims. Instead, he cited the verses of God in the Quran, that the punishment for fornication is lashes and not stoning. Yet when we look at the compilations, of Bukhari and a Muslim, they attribute this heinous punishment to the Prophet. How is it possible that Abu Hanifa, who lived some time in Mecca and Medina, would not have been aware of such practices if these were actually being attributed to the Prophet? All this shows that, again, these later compilations are fabrications 
that came into existence many, many years after the death of the Prophet. In the second question posed by the student where a hadith is cited, it states, inform me about the claim that drinking wine means 40 nights of prayer is not accepted from him or 40 days. Explain to me if this nullifies and ruins good actions. And here is Abu Hanifa's response to this question. It says, I do not know the explanation of that which they say, that Allah does not accept 40 prayers in the night or 40 days of a person inebriated with intoxicants. I do not lie as long as it is not explained correctly, and we do not recognize the opposition to justice. Abu Hanifa then cites numerous verses from the Quran regarding God's justice and that no one will suffer injustice. So his response is that he doesn't recognize the Hadith and therefore cannot act upon it, but can only say there is no injustice with God as per the verses of the Quran. So again, he refers back to the Quran to make his rulings and not the Hadith. So it's clear from this one book that Abu Hanifa's focus was the Quran. So we have to ask, why would future followers of uh, the Hanafi Madhab fabricate musnads and books and claim that Abu Hanifa put more emphasis on the Hadith and making his rulings than he actually did? This shows that the Hanafis of today are in complete opposition to the actual teachings and example of Abu Hanifa. While Abu Hanifa made his rulings almost entirely based on the verses of the Quran, the Hanafis of today put their focus on the Hadith corpus over the Quran and are now more closely aligned with the Shafi and Hanbali schools of thought. This historical revisionism, to make it appear as if Abu Hanifa was more Hadith-centric, took place hundreds of years after the death of Abu Hanifa during the canonization of the Sahih compilations of Bukhari and Muslim in the 5th century Hijra and 11th century Common Era. At this time, all four Sunni madhabs accepted the books of Bukhari and Muslim for their fiqh and in mass abandoned much of their old ways, particularly that of Abu Hanifa and his reasoning and Quran-centric approach. And because of this, they had to rewrite history, fabricating sources to make it seem that Abu Hanifa was more uh, Hadith-focused in making his legal rulings than he actually was. In the book, Canonization of Al-Bukhari and Muslim by Professor Jonathan Brown, he shows that it wasn't until the 4th and 10th century, and even potentially the 5th and 11th century, that the Madhabs adopted both Sahih, Bukhari, and Muslim as canonized works. That up until this point, there was many disputes among them regarding which Hadith to uphold and the emphasis of Hadith as a whole. But by this time period, they started all converging on these two works. And the book reads, this is between the end of the 3rd and slash 9th and middle of the 5th and 11th century, the broader Muslim community began imagining a new level of authority for prophetic traditions. And it continues on page 7. It says, This ability of al-Bukhari in Muslims' collections to serve as an acknowledged convention for discussing the Prophet's authenticated legacy would serve three important needs in the Sunni scholarly culture of the 5th-11th century. As the division between different schools of theology and law became more defined, scholars from the competing Shafi, Hanbali, and Maliki schools 
quickly began employing the Sahian, so that's of Bukhari and Muslim, as a measure of uh, authenticity in debates and polemics. By the early 8th slash 14th century, even the Hadith wary Hanafi school could not avoid adopting this convention. So this documents the exact moments in history, you know, hundreds of years after Abu Hanifa, where the shift moved away from the Quran towards these prophetic traditions. All this shows that Sunni Islam as understood today is a concoction that was fabricated hundreds of years after the death of the Prophet. Even the discovery of Hadith manuscripts corresponds with these timelines that it's not until the 11th and the 14th century that we start seeing complete compilations of Hadith manuscripts that at most we have a single page of the Muwat of Imam Malik but aside from that that the compilations of even Bukhari and Muslim come hundreds of years after their death. So this shows that the modern day Sunni understanding of putting so much emphasis on the Hadith is a fabrication. This is not how the earliest Muslims conducted their religion. This is only something that came to fruition hundreds of years after the death of the Prophet. We observed a chronological succession in which each school incrementally elevated the significance of Hadith in determining their legal principles. Starting with the Hanafi school, the oldest of them all, where Hadith initially played a relatively minimal, if not almost non-existent role in determining their legal rulings, followed by the Maliki school and thereafter the Shafi school, where we see that Shafi treated the Hadith as a source superior to that of the Quran. And this evolution culminated with the Hanbali school, which arguably depended the most on Hadith for their legal rulings over logic, reason, and most notably, the Quran itself. Then, as time passed, the Hanafi and Maliki schools began to shift more emphasis towards the use of Hadith in their legal rulings. A pivotal juncture occurred from the 5th century to the 8th century Hijra, when these divergent schools began to coalesce, converging toward a more Shafi, Hanbali perspective on Hadith. This marked a crucial turning point wherein Hadith assumed a central role in formulating their fiqh and a de-emphasis of the Quran can be seen across all four schools of thought and this caused the dissonance to the madhabs of the Hanafis. So to combat this, they had to fabricate musnads and books and attribute them back to their founder Abu Hanifa to try to portray him as more Hadith focused on determining his legal rulings than he actually was, and thus fulfilling the Quranic prophecy that the people of the Quran are destined to abandon the Quran. We see this spelt out in chapter 25, verse 27 through 30 of the Quran. It reads, The day will come when the transgressor will bite his hands in anguish and say, At last, I wish I had followed the path with the messenger. At last, woe to me, I wish I did not take that person as a friend. He has led me away from the message after it came to me. Indeed, the devil lets down his human victims. So we see, this is the testimony of the person who claimed to be among the messenger, but chose not to follow his path on the day of resurrection, regretting his decisions. And what is the messenger's response regarding this? We see the testimony of the messenger on the day of resurrection against his own people. In chapter 25, verse 30, it says, The messenger said, My Lord, my people have deserted this Quran. It does not say that they deserted his hadith, his sunnah, any of that. What these people have done, and we caught them red-handed, 
is that they deserted the Quran in favor of these fabricated narratives attributed to the Prophet that were created hundreds of years after his death. God willing, let's wake up. Let's go back to the original source, the actual statements that came out of the Prophet's mouth by means of the Quran, the only legitimate hadith we have today. And let's abandon these fabrications by the devil and his agents that infiltrated this religion and have duped so many people away from the path of the messenger. God willing, we're going to end there. If you guys want to get in contact with other like-minded people, please join us on our Discord server. We have daily discussions, people from all over the world who want to worship God alone and follow the Quran alone. And we have uh, Quran studies, recitation, meditation, all kinds of good stuff and would love to have you. If you want to follow the verses of the Quran, you can download the Quran study app on the iOS app store. If you don't have an iOS device, you can go to QuranStudyApp.com website. And if you want the notes from today's discussion, you can go to QuranTalkBlog.com website. There you can find notes from today's discussion as well as numerous articles on various topics. And until next time, peace and God bless.